You know, nobody sleeps during my, ch my sermons, right? There, there are a few of you who nod prayerfully in agreement from time to time, and I appreciate that, but nobody's sleeping. All right, well, the text today is this chapter 5 in the book of Ephesians, uh, and uh, the title of the sermon today is Making the Most of Time. Making the Most of Time. Has anybody here ever heard of Randy Huffman? Yeah, I didn't think so. Well, Randy is not as familiar a name to you as Thomas Kincaid, and he is no Thomas Kincaid, but they are both artists who spent the majority of their lives creating artwork that had religious themes to it. But, but there's some pretty significant differences between Randy Huffman and uh, Thomas Kincaid. Uh, first of all, uh, Thomas Kincaid, at least before he died and when people actually still went to shopping malls on a regular basis, had studios in shopping malls all across the country, whereas Randy's studio is on the beach outside of a hotel in Ocean City, Maryland. Um, Thomas is called the painter of light. Whereas Randy is a sculptor of sand. Thomas Kincaid would use a paint and a brush and canvas for his artistic creations. Randy would use sand and water and biodegradable glue and a plastic knife. Uh, both of these persons were creative artists, and Randy is still alive now in his fourth decade of creating his expertise, but they did it in much different ways. I've got a couple of slides back there that I hope we can put up to show you. This is some of Randy's uh, Hoffman's artwork on the beach. That's the table of our Lord, and it says, all are welcome. And then this obviously is a sculpting of Jesus. And then faith, hope, and love. Uh, if you'd like to see some of his other work, you can go to his website, randyhoffman.com. Uh, he's still doing this uh, today. I was thinking about sand castles when I began to think about this particular passage from the letter of Ephesians today. Uh, and sand castles, just like sand sculptures that Randy makes, are temporary. You know, he could spend all sorts of time creating these beautiful creations, but ultimately rain and wind and the tide is going to win out. And uh, in fact, as I was reading some of the things, as I found Randy online this past week, most of his creations last somewhere between three and four weeks before the rain and the tide and the wind take them away. Now, Randy, great job. I love what you're doing there. It looks nice, but if that were me, it wouldn't be worth it, right? I mean, why would you want to spend so long working on such a beautiful sand sculpture if you knew that in no time at all the wind and the rain and the tide were going to wash it all away? I mean, I would want, if I were going to invest that much time into something, I would want something that lasts a lot longer than that, right? I mean, 
isn't that true for most of us? There's certain things in our life that when we think about, well, how long is this going to take me to do it? And then how long is it going to last after I do it? And we're like, yeah, if it's not going to last a long time after it takes me that long to do it, I'm not interested in doing it at all. I think one of the reasons why we're so drawn to things that last why we're so drawn to things that are stronger and, and more permanent in our lives is because deep down inside, we realize that our lives really are a lot like sand sculptures. I mean, we take so long trying to shape and fashion and form what becomes our lives and, and what we do with our lives. And then it seems like the older we get, the faster life just passes us by. And then like in no time at all, poof, or you blink and it's all over. And I think that's one of the reasons why this idea of sandcastles or sand sculptures came to mind as I was reading this particular passage in the letter to Ephesians. We've been in Ephesians for several weeks now. You remember that this particular letter, at least in our Bible, is addressed to the church at Ephesus. We believe that Paul, or maybe a disciple of Paul, wrote this letter to the early church at Ephesus to kind of encourage and admonish and teach them as they become deeper in their faith and in their community of faith. Um, but there is a sense of urgency here in this particular passage of Scripture. It's as if Paul is worried. It's as if Paul sees life like a sandcastle or a sand sculpture. And that it takes you a long time to get it to where you want it, but then poof, in a minute, it can be gone. Now, one of the reasons why Paul is probably so urgent in his writing is because Paul thinks that maybe Jesus is going to return. You remember when Jesus was getting ready to ascend into heaven, he called together all of his disciples, all of his followers, and he says, look, I'm about to ascend to the Father, but if I go to the Father, I am going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you can be too. And if I go there and I prepare this place for you, guess what? I'm going to come back and get you so that where I am, you also may be. A lot of people, having heard what Jesus said that day, just automatically assumed that if Jesus was going to ascend to the Father and prepare a place for them, that Jesus would be back very quickly, very shortly, and take all of his followers with him back to heaven. There was this sense that Jesus had ascended, but that was going to return very, very quickly. And, and so maybe that's one of the reasons why Paul has this sense of urgency in this particular passage of Ephesians today. And while that is probably true, maybe there's another reason why Paul has this sense of urgency is because he is well aware of how quickly life passes us by. It's like a sandcastle. It's like a sand sculpture that takes a long time for us to fashion this thing we call life together in the way that we want it, in the way that we think that God wants it. And then all of a sudden, poof, you blink and it's gone. 
And so Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesian church because he wants them to have this sense of urgency. Whether it's because Christ is going to come back really, really soon, as Paul might have thought, or whether it's because Paul just understands that life happens quickly and everything that you've worked so hard for could be gone in an instant, Paul is urging the church at Ephesus And I believe the church in St. Mark's today to to be ready. Whether it's because Christ returns or whether it's because life just goes by so dadgum fast. And so this is what Paul says uh, to us in today's passage. First of all, he says, be careful how you live. Be careful how you live. What Paul wants is because Christ may come back any time now or because life just goes by really fast, is that it is important for us to have purpose and direction in the way that we live our lives. I mention this book a lot because it's one of my favorite books. I try to read it at least once every year. It's Andy Stanley's book, The Principle of the Path. And basically in that book, the premise of the book is this, that your direction and not your intention will determine your destination. Your direction, not what you intend to do, but actually which way you're going will determine your ultimate destination in life. And Paul wants us to see that in this passage of Scripture today, that, that, that you need to have direction in your life. You need to be moving towards the way that you want to go. You need to be doing the things that you think you need to do because whether Jesus comes back soon or whether life just happens quickly, be careful how you live. Every second is important. Second thing that Paul says in the scripture today is to use your time wisely. Be deliberate and thoughtful about the time that you have left here on this earth. As I was reading this scripture this week, I couldn't help but think about uh, some of the areas in my life where maybe I'm not using my time wisely. I don't know how many games of solitaire I play on my iPhone every day, but it's a lot. I mean, I'd be embarrassed for you to see just how much time I spend playing solitaire. Then maybe that's not your game. Maybe you're, you're much more into Candy Crush or some other game out there. But, but um, I, I can't tell you how many hours a week I listen to sports talk radio. I mean, I'd be embarrassed to tell you how many times, uh, how many hours I listen to that as opposed to how many hours I listen to something that might be spiritually uplifting or encouraging or, or moving me toward a better life with Christ. Now, there's nothing wrong with solitaire. There's nothing wrong with Candy Crush. There's nothing wrong with listening to sports talk radio. There's a time and a place for that. But as I read this scripture today, I was wondering, am I using my time wisely? If I knew that Jesus was going to be coming back tomorrow, or if I knew that my life would end tomorrow or this week, would I be playing Candy Crush and solitaire on my iPhone? I really don't think so. And so what Paul is getting at is that we don't know how much time we have left, but seize every moment. Use your time wisely because we're like sand sculptures. You you spend a lot of time developing this life, but just as quickly it could all be gone 
it could all be washed away in a second. The next thing that Paul says is to seek to know God's will. I don't think he's talking about just in the big things. I think most of us or many of us do a pretty good job in the big things of seeking to discern God's will. I mean, if it is a major life decision, I was having a conversation with someone a few weeks ago facing a major decision in their life. And one of the things that they said to me that just warmed this pastor's heart is that we have really bathed and covered this decision in prayer. We have sought the will of God in making this decision. And I think many or most of us, when we're making big decisions, do try to seek God's will. But, but this means seeking God's will in all the little things, too. Because a lot of those little decisions we make end up making a big decision, forming a big decision for us later. I have a friend who's a pastor in a Spanish-speaking church, and uh, he told me one time that people in his church don't make any decision without calling him and asking for counsel and advice. What would God want me to do? And he was talking about buying a car. He was talking about moving into a new home or an apartment. He was talking about putting kids in a particular school. He was talking about taking a different job. He said that his people called him every time that they faced any kind of decision and wanting to know what he thought that God might want them to do. Now, uh, don't be calling me if you're deciding to buy a car and wanting to know what I think about it. Uh, I asked him, why is it that they call you for those things? And he said, well, one of the reasons why they call is because English is not their primary language. And so anytime they're making a decision, anytime that they're entering into some sort of an agreement with somebody else, they want to make sure that they understand what it is they're signing, what it is they're agreeing to. Uh, they want to make sure that they understand all of the things that are at play there. So that's absolutely one of the reasons. But he said another reason in, in our Hispanic tradition is that we really do want all of our decisions, big and small, to be inside the will of God. And so while, yes, there's a practical reason, they want to make sure they understand the language of what's happening, there is also this desire that every decision we make would be inside the will of God. And Paul here is saying that it is important to seek to know God's will. Because here's the deal. If we seek God's will in, in the different matters of our day, it can only and will only inevitably lead to wiser living. If we are constantly worried about thinking about, praying about what God would want us to do, we will lead wiser lives as a result of it. Well, then Paul uh, just goes to meddling. He says, don't get drunk with wine. I'm glad that he clarified that it's wine that you can't get drunk by. Jim, we can still use the brown water and the beer, right, to get drunk. Is that, is that how you interpret this text? Well, I don't know. It says, don't get drunk with wine. Why in the world, in the middle of this passage of Scripture, where he's talking about seeking God's will and living right and being wise, would he just go off on a tangent and talk about getting drunk? Well, I think the reason that he's going there 
is because he knows what happens when you and I drink in excess. It is a really good example to make. Now, I don't know if y'all knew this, but I went to Ole Miss. Uh, I've had experience once or twice with excessive drinking. Yeah, my Lord, don't tell everything you know, right? Wasn't the wisest decision in my life. Because why? When you drink excessively, it impairs your judgment. You can't think clearly. You can't think rationally. You can't make good decisions. And when you drink excessively, it can, it can lead you down a path of destruction too. It can destroy your family. It can destroy your job. It can destroy your relationship with your friends. And if Paul is worried about Jesus coming back really soon in the second coming, or if Paul is just worried about life really passes you by quickly, why would you want to do anything that would impair your ability to make good decisions and to make good judgments that, that would lead you to a path of destruction instead of wholeness and restoration and healing that is what God wants for each of our lives Paul is saying this is such an urgent time and it's either urgent because Jesus is going to come back again or it's either urgent because life is so fleeting but there is another spirit that you're much better off being filled with than the one that comes in a bottle. And so he says, I want you to be filled with the Spirit of God. And then he ends this particular passage of Scripture by saying that I want you to sing psalms. I want you to sing hymns. I want you to sing songs. And, and have you ever thought about it? It doesn't matter what style of worship it is, whether it's a traditional high church liturgical worship or whether it's the latest, newest version of contemporary worship. All types of worship, a central component of them is singing. Songs. And the reason why those songs are such an integral, integral part of worship is that singing does two things. Number one, it expresses our praise, our adoration, our thanksgiving to God for all that God is and all that God does. God is as pleased by our voices when we sing, even if we can't really sing that well, you've heard make a joyful noise even if you have to. But, but God is moved by our singing in the same way that the Old Testament writers believed that an animal sacrifice, when it was burned on the altar, the, the fragrance of that, that meat burning would waft its way up to God. When we sing, God's ears tingle with excitement and joy because we are expressing praise and thanksgiving and adoration. But singing also serves another purpose. It is a, it is a witness to what we believe. It is a witness to what we think God has done and is doing in our lives. And so when you and I are singing about God's glory, we not only are lifting our praise up to God, but we are sharing a witness of what God is doing with everyone around us. And Paul says the time is urgent. 
Whether it's because Jesus is coming back, whether it's because life is like a sandcastle here one minute and gone the next, let's praise God. Let's be a witness to God through our voice with our singing. And then finally, the last thing that Paul talks about in this passage this morning is to give thanks in all things, in everything. I think it's important to point out that what Paul does not say is give thanks for everything. Paul says give thanks in everything. You see, I hear a lot of people that, that uh, it's if they believe that we should thank God for all of the evil and the bad stuff that's going on in the world. That, that that's what God wants us to do is just thank Him for it. I don't think that's what God wants to do at all. I think God wants us to thank God in all. In the midst of the evil stuff that's happening in the world. In the midst of all the bad stuff that's happening in the world. And the reason why God wants us to thank God in all things is because God is at work in all things. God's not any happier about all the evil and stuff that's going on in the world than you and I are. But God is at work in all things, trying to accomplish or achieve something good, even in the midst of the worst that life has to offer. And, and so Paul in no way disagrees or denies that there's evil or bad things going on in the world. He knows that. He sees that with his own eyes. But what he's saying is, even when evil is all around us, we can still thank God because God is present with us. God is walking alongside us. And God can make something good happen even out of that. Life is fleeting. Jesus may come back tomorrow or Something may happen and our life's gone tomorrow. It's like a sandcastle. It's here for a little while. And then in the next breath, it's been washed away. How might we need to be reminded of the fragility of life today? How might we be reminded to be careful about how we spend our time? How might we need to be reminded about using our time wisely? How might we need to be reminded to seek God's will? How might we need to be reminded to focus on things that improve our judgment, not impair it? How might we need to be reminded to sing songs, not only to praise God, but to witness to what God is doing? How might we need to be reminded that even in the tragedies that we experience in life, that God is at work and doing, trying to do something good, which would help us to see that even all things, we could give thanks.